Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos, or you've sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, as you can see, I'm settling into my new place here. Things are going in uh, to place everywhere I want them to be, and uh, that means that we'll be seeing the completion of a couple of uh, very long-term projects I've been working on for quite some time in the very near future. And this is, uh, this is good news for everybody. Uh, and also, we've got some great questions this week. So I'm just going to make one little comment, which was yesterday I had a good time on the March for Science. Uh, supporting critical thinking, skepticism, and reason out there. And, uh, and I hope you guys were part of that as well. Okay, let's go ahead and get on with your awesome questions this week. We've got some interesting ones. Joel Greenlee, what is your opinion of Paul Thomas Anderson's film, The Master? Do you think it accurately portrays Scientology at that formative time? And K.S. Fitzgerald, I was wondering if you had seen Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. If so, what did you think about it? PTA also said he showed the film to Tom Cruise, but wouldn't discuss his reaction. Could you imagine what his reaction would have been? I did see Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Um, I think within the last year or so, I actually sat down and, and finally just watched it, because of course I didn't see it while I was involved with Scientology when it first came out. and. Um, I have to say that I was actually very, very impressed with the film. I plan at some point on doing a, a full film review of it. I've been totally backlogging on my film reviews since uh, this move happened. I've got about four that I need to get done. And then The Master would be, would be five. Um, it was very well researched. The uses of the technology of Dynetics and Scientology were interesting because some were absolutely 1,000% exactly what it would look like in a Scientology organization. And then other parts were just kind of made up, which was, but in an interesting way, like when Philip Seymour Hoffman's character starts using the questions of, of Scientology's personality test as though it was an auditing session and he's, and he's asking questions to Joaquin Phoenix's character uh, as though he's auditing him you know, doing, you know, Scientology counseling, they call it auditing, uh, with these questions. And they're bizarre enough, and Scientology's techniques are, uh, can be a bit odd enough, that, that that scene actually made sense, even though I knew that that's not something you would do in Scientology. You, you do the personality test in order to open up and start telling Scientology your, your, your dark secrets so that they can reel you in. Um, which, I guess, was pretty much what happened in the film. I don't think... Uh, I don't think Anderson was, was ignorant of what he was doing there. I think he was using the, the information he had to make a point about how people are drawn into Scientology, and I think he did it well. Uh, as well as the, the hypnotic uh, sense of how some of the processes go, uh, having it go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth just for just on and on and on and th that is that's exactly what it's like to be audited on those objective processes in Scientology. I had stayed away from the film for a while because I'd been told that it was kind of weird, pretty strange, people had, you know, not so great reactions to it and so I kind of just sloughed it off. 
But when I did finally see it, I realized that the reason people were so weirded out by it is because it accurately is portraying a lot of what Scientology is like. Um, and I think he really did nail the early days of Dianetics as far as how the, he was lecturing, um, how the guy had a temper, how he would deal with confrontation or criticism. There was this scene in a room where he's just tearing into a guy and obviously losing his shit on this guy and everybody in the room is very uncomfortable. Uh, I think that very accurately portrayed Hubbard's um, sort of vindictive nature when he, when he thought that somebody was trying to best him or criticize him. Um, there was a scene uh, where the son of, uh, of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, I just, I keep saying that because I can't remember the guy's name in the film, but um, the son says, you know, you realize he's just making this up as he goes, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's actually exactly what uh, I think uh, L. Ron Hubbard's son was, was quoted as saying and certainly seems <laughs> true to me uh, in a number of ways as far as how Hubbard went about developing things. It's not like he did a lot of deep scientific research, which is what he always claimed, right? He was running all these scientific tests and doing experiments and, you know, running a, a series on lots of different preclears and whatnot, which was not how Hubbard actually did things, you know? He would, he would dream up some process run it on a person, and if there was any success with it, we found it, we've got the new thing, you know, and, and off they would run with it. And this was going on over and over and over again through the 50s. And I think that kind of showed in the film how that kind of process went and how good he was at just going out and giving a lecture to people right off the top of his head. Uh, he could just make stuff up and just keep people entertained for, you know, an, an hour uh, or so with these lectures he would do. And if you really break down what he was saying, half of it, more than half of it, was just total, you know, gobbledygook. Uh, and a lot of it were tall tales he was telling, you know, and things like that. So I think the film showed all that. I'll say one thing as well, which I was very, very impressed by with the film, was the relationship of his wife, which of course would have been Mary Sue Hubbard, in, real, in the real world. The film has Amy Adams playing his wife. And the, the dynamic of them, I thought, was, was very insightful. Um, and it, it also kind of showed how, you know, if you're familiar with the Dianetics and Scientology backstory and you know what they're showing you in the film, which is a fairly accurate representation of what went on through the 50s and into the 60s, then you see how her role was crucial to his support and to keeping the thing, the organization going. And I, and I don't think anybody has ever really seen that before the way Paul Thomas Anderson did. And I thought it was very insightful the way he wrote her character in to where she was, uh, you know, very steel backbone, very ruthless, determined, dedicated to the cause and willing to sacrifice people or do whatever it took in order to keep the thing moving forward and supporting, you know, her, her husband. Um, but also there was a very crucial scene in the film where she kind of literally has him by the, you know, private parts and is, uh, and is, and is telling him in no uncertain terms that, you know, he can fool around, but he better not do it and, you know, and flaunt it in front of her face. 
and making it clear that there that it's that there is a codependency with them that that it wasn't all about her aggrandizing Hubbard, but he needed to also service her needs. And I think that that was something Mary Sue in, re in the real world was able to pull off, however she did it. Um, where, where you see in, in real life, L. Ron Hubbard's earlier marriages and relationships were disasters. And he was a, a horrible womanizer and, and uh, even a bigamist. Um, you know, where he had married, you know, two women at the same time for a year. Um, so I thought that whole relationship and dynamic is actually kind of an important part of Scientology history that is hardly ever talked about or discussed. And it really got me thinking a lot more about Mary Sue. Uh, so I like the film for that reason. Joaquin Phoenix's character and the relationship between him and uh, Dodd, I mean, wasn't that, wasn't that the, the guy's name, Dodd? Anyway, the, between the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. Um, that was an interesting relationship, and I know it was the main theme of what uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was trying to do, was, the, was sort of the codependent relationship of the master and the servant, or the, you know, the leader and the follower, and how they play off one another. Um, you know, I, I mean, this guy was pretty screwed up by the war. He was pretty screwed up guy, period. And he goes in and he and he gets, you know, very uh, f uh, fanatic about this cause. And then he breaks away from it. And then, you know, it's sort of maybe better for the experience. You're sort of like, you know, maybe he's got some of his stuff together. Maybe not. You know, it's not like he was uh, delivered what it promised, though, which I thought was also well portrayed in the movie. But in terms of answering these questions, I think that it was very, very, very accurate. And I think that's one reason why the film comes off as strange as it is to a lot of people is because Scientology is pretty strange. And as far as Tom Cruise's reaction, you know, yeah, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson said he showed it to Cruise and that they're still friends. Personally, I think Cruise would have been furious. That's what I think. I think, I think Tom Cruise was not happy with that film. I don't think there was any way he could have been happy with that film because it clearly uh, shows L. Ron Hubbard and it clearly shows him in a not totally negative light but, in, but a weird and strange and odd light that doesn't particularly do him any, a lot of favors. And, um, you know, and, 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 and Paul Thomas Anderson was trying to take a higher look at it. You know, he was taking a, a bird's eye view of the whole thing. So he was, so there's not direct, clear-cut judgments being made in the film about the Hubbard character, about Joaquin Phoenix's character. Um, but I found them, from a Scientologist's point of view, that's nothing but critical, right? It's horrible. It's, it's awful. It's, a, you know, because if you're not painting Hubbard in a, you know, angelic light, then you're a horrible person. So I'm pretty sure that he was very unhappy with, with how that film was, was put out and how Scientology and, and the early days of Dynetics were uh, portrayed there. So there you go. I Heart Sydney. You keep on saying that LRH was a true believer. What are you basing that on? On one account, where one person said LRH wanted to get rid of body phaetons when he was already old, sick, and crazy? That doesn't mean that he was a believer when he was younger. He himself knew that he was cop copying that Xenu story from a different source. 
So you think he believed the person he copied it from? He might have started to believe in his own BS in his final years when he was getting more and more diluted and not before that. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he was not a believer, but I'm a critical thinker, and I just see no proof of him being a true believer. And since you're a critical thinker too, I hope you're not basing your thoughts on that single source about his behavior shortly before his death. I'd be interested in more sources that back up the claim of LRH being a true believer, and then I might agree. Well, alrighty then. Uh, there are multiple reasons to believe that L. Ron Hubbard believed in what he was talking about. First off, you have in 1938 him writing The One Command, which became Excalibur or The Dark Sword. This was not just a little write-up or a couple pages. This was an entire book that L. Ron Hubbard sat down and wrote and tried to sell uh, very enthusiastically, according to his uh, literary agent and, and people who were around at the time, who had something to, I think Forrest Ackerman had actually read it as well, and he, um, I quote him uh, in my book, uh, talking about the Dark Sword. And this was a work that Hubbard was very passionate about, and he said that uh, he thought it was going to be a bigger bestseller than the Bible. And, uh, and we believe, in fact, I did a whole podcast uh, with uh, Yuval Leor about the idea that Hubbard might have suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy and that that TLE might well have been triggered or somehow, uh, you know, he had some epiphany as a result of this TLE at the, in 1938 when he had this uh, dental surgery that apparently sparked this uh, epiphany of his where he felt like he, he said he died uh, in the dentist chair, they had to resuscitate him, and while he was dead, he had a vision of going up to uh, heaven or some through some tunnel and finding access to all information. And he wasn't supposed to, but he remembered some of it, and he came back all, all you know, on fire about this. Um, that was a precursor to then later being coming involved in the occult. And we have, in 1946 or 1947, L. Ron Hubbard's Affirmations, which are a whole appendix, again, in my book, Scientology A to Xenu. Those affirmations were a, pages and pages of handwritten um, self-hypnosis commands or statements that he was uh, making to affirm him, his, his ego and his, uh, and his greatness to himself and to try to rid himself of certain issues and problems that he had medically, personally, sexually, etc. Um, those affirmations were apparently dug up by a Scientologist, Jerry Armstrong, a Sea Org member in, the, in like 1980 or so, in the, that period of time, when a biography was being written about Hubbard uh, in his personal papers. And uh, Jerry Armstrong at that time had absolutely no reason to make them up or try to uh, forge L. Ron Hubbard's handwriting for pages and pages and pages, which, by the way, is a difficult task at best. Um, those documents, the L. Ron Hubbard affirmations, were written into court. That's how we know about them. And the Church of Scientology has never denied that they were uh, L. Ron Hubbard's words. Those, the contents of those give you very clear idea that L. Ron Hubbard believed in a guardian spirit, that he had a cult beliefs, not just, uh, it wasn't just a show or something he was doing to con Jack Parsons out of some money, and that um, when he was involved with Jack Parsons, they were doing sex-based magic uh, in order to create a moonchild and various other things, and a lot of 
Scientology's uh, framework is based on uh, the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and uh, Aleister Crowley's, um, or sorry, Crowley's teachings, uh, including the idea of, um, you know, ascendant masters and going up a bridge or through step-by-step -step various things, uh, writing axioms for Dianetics and then axioms for Scientology. That's 100% based on uh, Crowley's uh, Book of Law, where there are axioms. So, uh, in the same style, I mean, it's not just that there are some axioms. I mean, it's, it's clearly Hubbard was inspired by this work. Um, and so, you, that doesn't necessarily mean that he had to be a true believer because he was plagiarizing ideas that Crowley had. But we have the affirmations which show that he did truly believe in some kind of guardian spirit, which was part of his uh, occult practice with, with Jack Parsons. Now... He comes forward again with Dianetics, which has uh, similar ideas and concepts to what was in um, the Excalibur manuscript, right? So, and we know that Hubbard had a lot of personal problems, problems which he himself was trying to address using Dianetics and later Scientology on himself in order to try to cure his body problems and his personality problems and issues. And he talked about this in various places in his lectures, not in grim and gory detail, but in enough detail that in hindsight you go, yeah, I get that's what he was, he had, he was trying to do that. Um, plus, if you understand and agree with the TLE theory, um, which, I, which I definitely do, then you have... Uh, a, an almost fanatical belief on his part, going and playing against the, the pathological liar con man side of him and the, the lying side of him. So both of these things exist at the same time. He's a complex guy. I keep saying that about Hubbard, right? Because it's not black and white. It's not, oh, he was just purely easily, it's easy to see that he was just conning everybody. It's a it's not so easy to see that that's all he was doing, although it's easy to see that was part of what he was doing through the 1950s. And there's lots of reasons to, uh, to, to say that, yeah, he had a con going. He had crazy stuff going on. But he was also you know, drinking to excess. There, were, there was drug use. How much drug use is, uh, is arguable, right, depending on who you talk to and when they were around him. Uh, but was he using drugs? Uh, yeah, he, he, he was. Um, you know, how much and when? That's debatable. Was he drinking? Yes, absolutely. You know, again, how much and how often? Debatable, right? Depends on who you're talking to from what time period. Um, so, so those are factors, right? Then you get L. Ron Hubbard's solo auditing, uh, which he develops in, at St. Hill Manor in, in, uh, in England in the early 1960s, before the Xenu story. Uh, he, had, he had developed uh, confidential auditing uh, called power processing, and then he developed these, uh, the early OT levels, OT1, OT2, before he hit the Xenu story with OT3. And those were uh, auditing procedures that he spent, I don't know, at that point, I guess, two or three, maybe four years developing uh, the clearing power and the clearing course and R6EW, these were auditing procedures that were run on yourself. So, you know, you could say, well, Hubbard developed those 
uh, to do solo auditing, and that was all just a big con, but yet he spent hours doing it on himself in a room. So, you know, I mean, he kept worksheets like they have these things. They have file cabinets of his worksheets. So, you know, sure, he could have just made all that stuff up, but I doubt that he did. Um, I mean, the detail that comes out of that time period is intense. It's not, this isn't a little brush-off sort of thing. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages of detailed descriptions about how to do these auditing procedures. And he wasn't, you know, so if he was just making it up, he was spending a lot of time making stuff up. Uh, I believe that he was actually dedicated to trying to handle things about himself, and he uh, couldn't get other people to do it on him, and so he finally went, well, I'll just do it on myself, and that's where solo auditing comes from. And, uh, and it was, you know, three years or so after he started developing solo auditing that he comes up with the Xenu story in 1967. After all of this, you come up to 1980, 81, 82, I can't remember the date, I think it was 1980 that he wrote that final bulletin that we uh, refer to where he talks about himself being Lucifer, the light bringer. And uh, he sort of brings out this Gnosticism where God in the Bible was the bad guy and Lucifer was the good guy because he was the light bringer. And this is a Gnostic idea, right? That, that by denying knowledge or Gnosis to man, you're doing a, a bad thing and that's why God's bad. Whereas uh, Satan or the snake or the, you know, the, the, the creature that comes in and, and convinces Eve to you know, eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, this was, a, from the Gnostics' point of view, that was the good thing. That was the right thing to do, to give man knowledge. And Scientology, as a philosophy, is definitely based on the idea that knowledge is a good thing, um, which I know is completely contradictory to how Scientology has developed into denying people access to the Internet and, you know, critical things about Scientology and that sort of stuff. But that's, you know, th that's the fanatical mindset that, that develops after the fact of having developed this idea or philosophy that knowledge is good, uh, you know, responsibility, control, like all these things are, you know, are, are good things and, and we should all get along and there should be compassion and caring and understanding. And I mean, there's good stuff in that philosophy to look at and go, wow, this is really good. Uh, it's just, you know, <laughs> there's all this bad crap piled on top of it. So, um, so Hubbard writes in this 1980 issue that, you know, this is who he is and was, and this is what he's going to be doing, and he's going to come back as a politician, he's not going to come back as a religious leader and keep carrying on with Scientology. And I believe that he wrote that bulletin. It's, it, it reads like him, and it absolutely, I have, no, I have no question at all, I don't have any qualms at all at accepting that that bulletin is, was L. Ron Hubbard. So... All of these things, in addition to Sarge's story about having built the uh, e-meter for Hubbard in his last days to, you know, to electrocute him and, and maybe kill him, that, that's just one of many pieces of information that, uh, that gives the idea that Hubbard was serious about what he was doing. You also have the testimony of uh, tens of people that I've spoken to and, and, and who have written stories and written about their experiences on, on message boards and on and various places on the internet where you get honest stories from them about Hubbard 
trying to use his Scientology material to try to help people. And, uh, and I don't doubt Hubbard's sincerity in that. I think that he was sincere about uh, trying to help his, his people under him when he was on the, the ship running around in the Mediterranean and at certain times before that. I think he was also you know, big on money and power and he was a bit of a megalomaniac and a narcissist and a pathological liar. So, you know, it's just, like I said, it's a complex guy. So there's times when he's helping people, there's times when he's not so helpful and he's being a complete asshat and dickhead. So, sure, you know, they, they were, you can see both of those things in him. But it's this whole picture looks to me like a guy who was a bit off from way before Dianetics came along uh, and had criminal tendencies and, and, and I, they thought, you know, lying was just a, a really good idea. Uh, mainly about himself, you know. Uh, that's where a lot of his lies tended to focus, is, is on his own personal experiences and his own um, you know, adventurous record of, of, of doing you know, amazing daredevil things. Um, but I think he thought that his talking about Dianetics and Scientology always had these, these bits of truth in it. You know, even if he knew he was personally off the rails himself and he wasn't always following his own teachings. I think he really thought he was onto something. I really do. So those are many of the reasons why I think that, and I hope that answers your question. John A. Wasn't 1996 about the time of the Lisa McPherson death a real tragedy in the black eye for Scientology and Miscavige? Could this have been when the Pope decided to just go for the money and forget about service? I believe that that was definitely part of the picture as to why Miscavige veered off of trying to get Dianetics and Scientology services being sold as the main income source for Scientology. When Lisa McPherson happened, she was a woman who was in Clearwater, Florida in 96-97 time, I believe, who, uh, yeah, 95-96, that's right, is when this all went down. And, uh, and that was also at the same time as the Golden Age of Tech was released. It was on all... Same time period, same place at Flag. Um, so Lisa was getting services. She somehow had some kind of a psychotic break. Was was out in the street running naked, uh, you know. And this was right after she'd been told she was clear, uh, you know, in Scientology. So the Scientologists got hold of her and uh, got her out of the the hospital where they had been where they'd taken her. And put her under a type three watch. A type three is a is a term in Scientology for when somebody has a psychotic break. And they put her under this type three watch and had her start doing what's called the introspection rundown, which is a Hubbard uh, invented series of actions that you take on somebody who's gone nuts in order to get them to not be nuts anymore. And um, and that was kind of what they thought they were going to get. Instead, they ended up killing her because she really needed professional help and, this, and the Scientologists really have absolutely no idea what they're doing when it comes to treating real insanity. They, they just don't. Other than looking at things or taking a walk or being you know, very calm and, and orderly with somebody, they, they don't know what else to do with somebody who's, who's truly gone into a psychotic fit or, or situation. And that is what it looks like happened with uh, Lisa McPherson. So she wasn't eating enough. She wasn't really there a whole lot. And so she ended up dying on, under their care. Huge problem, right? 
And uh, I think it's the closest Miscavige has ever come to actually seeing anything like real jail time because there was, you know, a criminal investigation of this. And, uh, and Scientology paid a lot of money, did a lot of schmoozing, and ended up uh, destroying the career of the medical examiner involved to get that woman to change her story as to what the cause of death was. Uh, and so they skidded through that. They survived. Scientology survived that by the skin of their chinny-chin-chin. Um, and I think that the lesson that David Miscavige took away from that was that selling and delivering auditing can be dangerous. I mean, he had had his hands personally on Lisa McPherson's uh, auditing and, and the supervision of her auditing. He's the one who said she was clear. So, uh, so he was absolutely, you know, partly responsible for what happened to her. And I think that freaked him out. Um, and I think he went, you know, this stuff can recoil in a really big way. So maybe we shouldn't be doing as much of it. And I think that's when you see the push, you know, you start seeing this push in a direction away from uh, delivering the actual goods of Dianetics and Scientology and concentrating only on the materials, selling books and lectures, and on straight donations, which is building up the buildings and doing fundraising. And, uh, you know, and, and that's conjecture on my part. I mean, maybe that had nothing to do with why Miscavige shifted gears as hard as he did. But, he, but th there's no question that he did shift gears. And there's no question that he did take drastic actions to make training of Scientology auditors much more difficult. I mean, really, night and, it's like, it, it is really night and day. Uh, I trained people before and then I trained people after this golden age of tech that Miscavige uh, unleashed in 1996 and it was night and day difference and it was the difference between making auditors in a couple weeks and taking years to have to get somebody through the training that was necessary to be an auditor. And I think it's still pretty screwed up, you know. Um, they've done phase two a few years ago, you know, to try to fix his, his 1996 mess ups. But, uh, but Scientology is just, you know, just collapsing in front of our eyes, so it's not really going anywhere uh, again. So anyway, long story, short answer is, uh, yeah, I do think that the Lisa McPherson case had something to do with why Miscavige shifted gears. I could be wrong about that, but the, uh, the evidence all seems to, to kind of point to that, and it's something that we definitely do talk about in the uh, X world as a, as a distinct possibility. TJB fan. I agree with gay rights, but in some of your Q&A videos, you have explained your thoughts on why people are gay, including some I don't agree with. I think more along the lines that it is a choice rather than something they cannot help. And I have an interesting question regarding this. You have said that some people are born with this inclination, and I have heard from other people that this is all a matter of a person's genes and DNA gone awry, so it's not their fault or their choice, etc. Well, if these things were so, then where are all the gay animals? Gay birds, insects, fish, plants, etc. I've never noticed a single one. It wouldn't be that only humans can be gay, would it? Let's face it, people can be talked into just about anything or enticed by the glamour of it all from watching today's media. They can even be talked into Scientology, right? Anyway, am I on to something here or is my question easily refuted? 
Uh, you're way off. I'm sorry, but the, like way off. So let me, let me uh, explain. Homosexual behavior or the sexual behavior between uh, same gender within the animal kingdom is extremely common. Uh, and has been for uh, as long as animals have been around, as far as we know. There has been, uh, there have been books written about this in the recently that have suggested that the uh, observance of this behavior in the past has been uh, biased right out of existence because of stigmas connected to uh, LGBT behavior in human beings. And so therefore, oh, oh, so we can't be watching dogs actually doing that or uh, you know, other kinds of animals, even though that's exactly what they were doing. And it's not all just related to the sexual act. There are other sexual behaviors that some animals and plants and, and uh, birds and whatnot get involved in that would be, that would, you know, have same gender activities going on, even if it's not sexual intercourse. So that all being said, uh, you're going to find actually some amazing uh, facts if you start actually researching what goes on with sex in the animal kingdom, uh, including with uh, lizards and birds and things, uh, including animals changing sex uh, gender spontaneously uh, as a result of, of necessity or circumstances in the environment. Uh, just absolutely fascinating what goes on with this, and not just frogs. Uh, this, this happens with, uh, has apparently happened even with mammals in, in some cases. Uh, so, in terms of answering your question as to, uh, you know, birds and the bees and, and whatnot, well, here are some mammals that have exhibited homosexual behavior. Bison, brown bears, uh, caribou, domestic cats, chimpanzees, foxes, giraffes, dolphins, goats, humans, Although, not me, I sit here and point at myself. People ask me all the time, are you gay? Are you gay, Chris? I, I'm not. <laughs> Lions, orca, panda, raccoons. Amongst birds, we get uh, chickens, barn owls, king pengu penguins, mallards, ostriches, swans. Amongst fish, we get uh, the bluegill sunfish, the grayling, the green swordtail, the jewelfish, the salmon, uh, amongst reptiles, the bearded dragon, the blue-tailed day gecko, the uh, common garter snake, desert tortoise, fence lizard, so, oh yeah, all kinds, wood turtle, um, other amphibians, black spotted frog, uh, mountain dusky salamander, amongst insects, you have dragonflies, um, Man, uh, lar alfalfa weevils, blowflies, pomus flies, red ants, cutworms, digger bees, fruit flies, glasswing butterflies. Uh, then there's other invertebrates that have uh, demonstrated homosexual behavior like the harvest spider or the mite or the spiny-headed worm. So, uh, yeah, there's... Really, the answer to your question is uh, Google is your friend, dude. He's got to do a little bit of research, and this stuff is just uh, it just overflows on all over your your computer screen. 
homosexuality is, is a very common practice amongst all kinds of animals, plants, uh, insects, birds, bees, etc. And, um, and this is really just getting serious sociological and, and psychological study very, very recently. So there is all kinds of sorting out being done of sex and gender and uh, lots of things connected with all of this that I am no expert in, uh, as has been made clear to me uh, in some criticism of some of my earlier comments on this. And I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm, my, I, my thing is, look, uh, uh, tolerance and understanding. I, I really don't care what you're up to. Um, but in terms of understanding it and really digging into the sociology of it, uh, and the science of it, you're going to find that this is a very in-progress, research-heavy thing right now, and there's and there's still and there's bound to be plenty more of this. And it is not a simple matter of there are males and there are females, and that's how nature intended us to be. Uh, you're going to find that's just not that's just totally uh, the most oversimplified nonsense you could possibly imagine. So. Check it out, uh, look into it some more for yourself, and I think you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The Flash is back. It is time for Flash Answers. Naomi B. Hi Chris, do you know if Scientology was caught up in the Panama Papers debacle in early 2016, I think? No, I didn't actually hear of anybody getting caught up in that in the world of Scientology. I mean, you know, the, the Clintons did, a lot of people with a lot of money did, um, but I didn't hear about anybody in the world of Scientology. If anybody did, leave it for me in the comments section because I would actually be very curious about that. E-Learning Digest. Hey Chris, what percentage of Scientologists are Hispanic? I notice it seems to be all white people. Yeah, no, not so much. There's quite a few Scientologists from Latin America. They have a lot of people down in uh, Colombia, Peru, Brazil. Um, so South America and Central America, Latin America, there's, a, there's a, quite a few organizations down there. And they've, they've had a lot of people go through their Dianetics seminars and, and onto Scientology services. Venezuela has some very rich Scientologists involved, some whales. Um, Percentages-wise... 10, 15% maybe, uh, Latino, maybe, yeah, maybe something like that. Just kind of guessing. Now, of course, I come from Los Angeles and California, so, you know, you're probably going to have a larger contingent of, of, of Latino Scientologists there that I'm basing that off of from my own observations. Maybe in Flag or other parts of the world, there's, there's not quite as heavy a contingent of that. Scientology is very much a white person group, though, uh, for sure, you know, from the United States and from Europe. That is definitely where the majority of its members come from, so. Comrade Da. Is the bridge a bridge like across a river or the command structure of a ship? Honestly, I find the naval stuff in Scientology the most silly and egregious compared to the mythology and practices of Scientology. Not that the rest isn't a cash-grab space opera, but the naval stuff seems shoehorned in. Yeah, that's Hubbard, but um, the bridge is a bridge from a place of, of lower spiritual awareness and ability to a place of greater and higher and more awareness and wonderfulness, and it's a plateau across a dark chasm, as Hubbard put it, at the end of Dianetics and Modern Science and Mental Health is where he first laid out this analogy of building a bridge to a better place. 
And uh, so yeah, it's not, not a bridge as in a, uh, as in a ship. Mia culpa. File this one under sideways, but I have a burning question for you. What is your phone's general ringtone? Inquiring minds want to know. Hello. Okay, everyone, that's our show for this week. I hope you found my answers uh, educational, informative, and entertaining as usual. Please leave me any comments, feedback, uh, good, bad, or sideways in the notes below on YouTube here or at my mncriticalthinking.com uh, blog where you also find all of my content. And uh, if you are enjoying my channel and this show, please consider uh, some throwing me some love and support on Patreon or through PayPal. Every one of you guys who support me, you guys are awesome and incredible and wonderful. And I, and I actually do need and want more of you to do that because that's what helps keep the roof over my head and keeps this channel going and allows me to have the time that I need to get the work done that I know you guys want uh, to see out of me. So it just makes it all happen faster and easier. So show me some love and uh, please do share and like my videos all over the interwebs. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.